Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have been Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, and this is episode 26, State of Tennessee versus Purvis Tyrone Payne. On June 27, 1987, Sharice Christopher and her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Lacey Jo, were stabbed to death by Payne, the boyfriend of Sharice's neighbor. Sharice's three-and-a-half-year-old son, Nicholas, was rushed to Labonner Children's Hospital in Memphis, where doctors were able to save his life. Michael and I will talk about the events of June 27, 1987, including Payne's encounter with a police officer, his arrest, trial, and post-conviction claims. We'll also talk about the recent decision of the Shelby County Criminal Court, which granted Payne's second request for DNA testing. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. We took it right up to the break talking about the uh, project uh, website here uh, and some of the stuff they were talking about. Like I said, I mean, just looking at it, off the top, I can think of two things. One of them doesn't prove that he didn't kill anybody. The second one, okay, maybe he has an intellectual disability, but... You're not really proving anything to me because you're not even putting out an IQ score. At least put out an IQ score to make me think, okay, maybe this is possible. Let's have him tested or something. But all you're doing is saying, right. hey, intellectual disability, intellectual disability. And and part of the problem with the IQ scores is that really he doesn't qualify because he doesn't have an established score 70 or below prior to – June 27, 1987, or prior to 1988, when he was tried. And generally, that's when the intellectual disability has to be demonstrated as existing at the time of the offense. 
because what the intellectual disability does is it basically makes you ineligible for capital punishment right because of the intellectual disability right exactly it, it literally makes no sense and right now it looks like he's uh on hold uh till April 9th uh due to covid now the question i Correct. have here just based upon what governor lee wrote on this uh, does that mean that his new date is April 9th, or does that mean that they start the process all over again April 9th? More likely than not, what is going to have to happen is that the Shelby County District uh, Attorney General will have to request another trial date, another execution date from the Tennessee Supreme Court. Okay. Because in Tennessee, the Tennessee Supreme Court sets execution dates. Well, that's kind of interesting. At the request of the district attorney general in the jurisdiction. That's kind of interesting to me that they're keeping, even though, you know, it really wasn't held off for anything that is, you know, okay, well, we're holding it for DNA testing or anything. No, even though it's just COVID and he'd be, you know, dead at this point. Otherwise, they're going to make them go through the whole process again. I mean, once again, they don't make it easy, so I don't really want to hear in this case how easy they're making it, how rushed this is. Uh, well, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's been thirty three years 32, since the murder. Thirty three, thirty two, eighty eight. Thirty two since he was convicted. Thirty three since the murders. And, um, you know, I I wouldn't say that setting his first execution date wasn't set until 2007. Right. True, true. So he, you know, he had his state and federal post-conviction claims. Um, They, you know, they made their way through the courts. Mm. Um, Before he ever got his first date. So... No. <laughs> well, hold Not on now. At all. Hold on now. This is interesting to me, and I'll send uh, you the link. But actually, the Innocence Project does have the first uh, the first paragraph. Purvis Payne has maintained his innocence for more than thirty years, yet despite having no criminal or prior criminal record and living with an intellectual disability, he is set to be executed in Tennessee on April 9th, twenty twenty one. That's not true. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Um, of course, we that know is that is likely. Um, I'll take a look at it, or I'll I'll go to the Tennessee website and look at the order, the reprieve. Mm-hmm. But basically, as I understand the reprieve, actually, after I've got a August picture of the 9th, reprieve right here. I'm going to download oh. the exact the actual reprieve. Uh, as I understand it, the reprieve expires on August 9th, and the state's going to have to ask for another date. Okay. Because the governor the, doesn't set execution dates. Here's what it says on the actual little piece with the seal on it. Pursuant to the authority vested me, yada, 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 bullshit, 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 uh, scheduled to be carried out December 3rd, 2020, State v. Nichols, blah, 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 blah. The reprieve shall continue in effect until April 9th, 2021. 
is what the actual picture says, and I'll send it to you. Right, exactly, but that doesn't mean that the execution date is going to be reset. Right. Okay. Okay. Once it again, only, I just it only that means just that the re- it it means that until the reprieve expires, the state can't ask for another date, and the court can't set another date. Right. I just sent it to you on Facebook. I don't know in case your phone pops up. That's what. I'm, that's what that I'm was. looking at it right now. It's uh, the reprieve shall continue in effect until April 9, twenty twenty one. That just means that the state can't request another date and the court, the Supreme Court can't set one until after. Now, theoretically, yeah, the state mm-hmm. could go ask for another date now, but the mm-hmm. court couldn't set it until after the 9th of April. Okay. So, yet again, it's probably Innocence Project being ill-informed and it's, stupid. It, it's, yeah. innocence, it's Innocence Project propaganda. Right. Okay, anyway, because I'll push this off it, the, it does off not mean that that will be his new execution date. And in fact, he doesn't have one as we as we speak right now. He does not have another execution date set. Okay. Sweet. Okay. I just I pushed this off with the timeline enough. I just wanted to cuz I know I asked That's you okay. about that, so I wanted to bring it up real quick. But go ahead. That's okay. All right. So tonight we are talking about um, the murders of Sharice and, and pardon me, I'm, I know I'm mispronouncing, Falnick Christopher. She was born 12-16-1958, December 16, 1958. Her parents were Mary and Joseph Svalnick. Joseph was a member of the U.S. military. I believe he was in the U.S. Navy, which is likely what brought the family to Millington, Tennessee at some point. Um, Sharice had several siblings. Uh, She had sister Angie, brothers Timmy, Michael, Greg, Jerry, Jeff, and James. So dad and mom had their hands full with two girls and one, two, three, four, five, six boys. Um, In around 1983, 1984, she married a guy by the name of Kenneth Christopher. They apparently lived in Texas for some period of time, and he was abusive. Uh, He also had, I think, drug problems. In around 1984, son Nicholas was born. And then on January 22, 1985, Lacey Joe was born. Um, Sharice eventually left Kenneth and came back to Millington. She moved in with her sister, Angie, and they were sharing an apartment at the Hiawassee Apartments in uh, Millington. She also divorced Kenneth. Um, They were living at the Hiawassee Apartments, and then Angie decided to get back together with her husband and try and make her own marriage work. So Sharice was left with Nicholas and Lacey in the apartment in the Hiawassee Apartments. It was in a building... It was a fourplex. There were two units upstairs and two units downstairs. 
the manager, Nancy Wilson, lived in the unit on the first floor directly below Sharice's apartment. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, uh, January 27th, the manager was at home. A lot of people were out and about at the complex. Um, now, across the hall on the second floor from Sharice was a young woman named Bobby Thomas. She had also been in an abusive marriage or an abusive relationship. Um, she had children who had been affected by it, and she made the decision to leave her husband or, or significant other and get her own place and, and have her own life uh, with her kids. And at the time, her boyfriend was a guy by the name of Purvis Payne. He was okay. the son of a minister who also had a painting company. Okay. Um, he was born in Tipton County, Tennessee. And I think they lived in Drummond, which I believe is out in Tipton County. Okay. Um, Purvis was 20 years old, so he was born in 1967. Uh, he was around, He hung around the apartments with Bobby and her kids. Uh, he had met Sharice and her kids, so he knew them. And um, so now while his family and his advocates paint a picture of him that is, you know, no history of drug or alcohol abuse, personally I think that he was, like a lot of preacher's children, buck wild when he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And he could be the sweet, pious child in front of mom and daddy and in front of the eyes of the church and in front of the eyes of the congregation. But when he was over in Millington and away from Drummond, he probably did what he wanted to do, whether it was uh, moral, right, wrong, whatever. Um, his relationship with Bobby Thomas would be an example. They weren't married. They probably were not celibate. He probably spent the night there a time or two, even though that breaks a big commandment. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, I mean, most most preacher's children can be the wildest of kids. Yeah, only slightly. Um, so, but, um, and, you know, I, I, I think that when he wasn't in Drummond, when he was out on his own, he was doing what he wanted to do, period. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the 27th of June, 1987, he was apparently waiting for Bobby Thomas to come back from visiting her family in Arkansas, and none of the sources say where she was in Arkansas. Will pick so? Which, which means she could have been... 45 minutes to an hour away in West Memphis and Marion. She could have been uh, a little Lord, bit more than an hour anywhere. away she in could have been Earl. Five hours away, yeah. She could have been in Little Rock. She could have been in Jonesboro. I mean, nobody says where she was. I mean, she could have been, like I said, she could have been no more than 45 minutes to an hour away mm-hmm. from Millington, just on the other side of the river. Right. Um, but uh, 
So he was waiting for her to come home, and he was apparently, he was at a barbecue with a friend, and then he went over to Bobby's apartment. She wasn't there. So he started driving around with a friend. They were shooting cocaine. He bought a Colt 45 malt liquor, several cans of it, and was waiting for Bobby to come home. And apparently they were looking at porn. How one okay. does that, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, and, you know, where people say, oh, the state just made all this up, um, it is, according to the direct appeal, Payne admitted to doing this that day. Okay. So he somewhere there's a statement from Purvis Payne saying he was driving around, shooting cocaine, drinking beer, and looking at porn. Nice. Okay. Okay. Because, again, it in the direct appeal, and that's not – the direct appeal does not come – is not made out of whole cloth. Right. Somewhere in the trial transcripts is a statement from Purvis Payne or some other witness that says this is what we were doing. Yeah, exactly. Um so and and that you know that became the state's theory of motive as I think I've said before and I'll say it again. Motive is not an element that must be proven in a murder case. Motive is something if the state has some evidence or information that would lead to showing a jury a potential motive, then they will present that to the jury. Mm-hmm. They don't have to. Pres- they don't have to do it. Um, if they fail to do it, it doesn't have any impact on the guilt of the defendant. It doesn't undermine the conviction in any way, shape, or form. And even if they're wrong, it's still, it doesn't undermine the conviction. Yeah. So, um, so earlier in the day on June 27th, Sharice and Nicholas and Lacey were at her parents' house. And apparently the, the Zvalniks lived Relatively cl- relatively close by in Millington. Um, in the afternoon, Sharice returned to the apartment with Nicholas and Lacey. It was time for them to take a nap. And I guess at Grandma and Grandpa's house, that would not happen. Um, so they went back to their apartment, and Sharice was trying to put the kids down for a nap. It was around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The manager, Nancy Wilson, was in her apartment on the first floor beneath Sharice's apartment, and she heard horrible noises upstairs. She heard screams. She heard thumps. She heard running. She heard, at one point, she heard Sharice yelling, get out, get out, and she didn't believe that Sharice was talking to an intruder. She believed Sharice was trying to tell her kids to get out of whatever room she was in. Um, outside, a girl visiting a friend who lived in the, I guess, in the first floor, the other first floor apartment, she was sunbathing in the backyard, and at one point she heard 
and saw the back door that looked out on the backyard opening, banging closed, opening, banging closed. And she saw a dark hand with a gold watch pull the door trying to close it. And this is while the manager is hearing the commotion on the second floor. Uh, Then it got quiet and Ms. Wilson heard footsteps going into the bathroom and water running. Okay. She didn't know what was going on. She wanted to go. She she debated going to help, decided against it. She did call police. And I believe at that point, Millington had a 911 system because some of the, some of the sources refer to a 911 call. Uh, if mm-hmm. not, she probably, because she managed an apartment building, she probably had the Millington police phone number handy and was able to call the Millington police uh, at, a, at an emergency or non-emergency number. Yeah, one would um, imagine. The call, the call was dispatched to two other officers, but an officer by the name of Owen was right by the apartment, so he decided to respond and back up the two officers that the call was assigned to. He pulls up, And as he's getting out of this car, he looks up at the building, and through a picture window, he sees an African-American man bending down and picking something up. And then he goes toward the building, and he either meets that man on the stairs or just as the man descends the stairs. And the man that he encounters at that point is Purvis Payne. Right, and I read something saying that he was, like, so covered in blood that it looked like he was sweating blood. Yes, that was Officer Owen's description. He had bloody clothing on. Uh, the officer said it looked like he was sweating blood. Payne doesn't say, oh, my God, there's a woman and two little kids in the apartment right there. They need help. You've got to help them. Right. You think uh, you'd be I, I heard them. I went to see if I could help, and I couldn't help. No. He tells the officer he's the complainant. And that is a consistent statement throughout all the resources, throughout all the opinions. He doesn't say, he says, I'm the complainant. Now, I want to know how somebody with no criminal history would who's intellectually disabled as Purvis Payne supposedly is would use the phrase I'm the complainant. Right. That doesn't pass a smell test to me. Yeah, no, not um, at all. I and and I can bet if he he had probably a history in Drummond and in Tipton County, but because of his father he was given a lot of passes. Okay. And or he was able to talk his way out of shit. Mm-hmm. So then Owen asked Payne, what's going on? You know, he, he thinks he's responding to a domestic disturbance. He sees Payne covered in blood. Payne says, I'm the complainant. So you got to wonder, you know, who did this to Payne. And when he asked Payne what's going on, Payne hits him with the bag and runs. What the hell? 
And Payne runs down Biloxi into another set of apartments and disappears. Now, Owen realizes Payne's running too fast to be hurt. So he, the other officers have, have responded by that time. He's like, that. he's not the one hurt. Something's going on. Something's wrong in that apartment. And they go up to the apartment. Nancy Wilson has to let him in because the door was locked. Um, which I wouldn't expect a good Samaritan to do. Right. You know, you've you've got an apartment where three people are in, in medical distress. You're going to get help. Why would you lock the door behind you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's then when the officers come in that they find a horrific scene. They find Sharice dead, Lacey dead. Um, multiple stab wounds. Sharice had 42 stab wounds and 42 defensive wounds to her hands. Mm-hmm. And while some people equated defensive wounds with um, uh, blunt trauma or inflicting blunt trauma on an assailant, I think the defensive wounds were knife wounds, were cuts. She fought okay. hard hard, hard, trying to protect her children. And I do believe Nancy Wilson was correct. I believe when Nicholas and Lacey, who hear their mother screaming and hear a struggle, when they came into the the kitchen, I think uh, Sharice was trying to tell both of them to get out of the apartment. That makes sense. To try and save them. So uh, they they call an ambulance. They find Nicholas is still alive. He's got severe abdominal wounds, but he's still alive. They contact. They call an ambulance. He's rushed to Labonner. He was in surgery from like eight o'clock that night until early the mo- the following morning. He had multiple surgeries. He was in ICU for several weeks. Um, you know that he's Did alive. Did they ever ask him to identify Purvis? No, I I I saw him as an adult interviewed on a show called Impact of Murder. It's on the ID channel if you can find it. It's a great episode. It's called My Lacey. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that he knew it was Purvis Payne, but he was only three and a half years old. Okay. So they knew he couldn't testify. Right. Okay. And so... Um, but also, you've got to understand people out there who say Purvis Payne would have had no motive. Purvis Payne had just attacked Sharice, tried to rape her, tried to have sex with her. She turned him down. He stabbed her to death. Her kids walked in. They knew him because they played with Bobby's kids. Sharice knew him. Right. It would have been a problem. So it would have been a problem if she had contacted police when he tried to have sex with her. Yeah. You know, it would have been a problem if she told Bobby, hey, your boyfriend's trying to have sex with me. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been an issue. So, um, yeah. So, uh, now... As police are processing the scene, they find Payne's bag with bloody clothing in it. They find his bloody shoes 
at some point he knocked on a door of an ex-girlfriend who lived in another apartment complex on Biloxi. But she says she was having a fight with her boyfriend and didn't want to entertain anyone, so she didn't open the door. But when she right. testified at trial, she denied that there was anything wrong with Purvis when he knocked on her door. Frankly, mm-hmm. I find that kind of hard to believe. Yeah, I mean... Because he was covered you, in blood and looked like he was sweating blood. Yeah, you'd remember a you know? guy who came in and, and uh, looked like he was covered in blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think that was her effort not to inculpate him. Well, right, 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 absolutely. And then he went to another ex-girlfriend's apartment uh, on Biloxi Street in Millington, and she let him in, and he hid in the attic. And was found hiding in the attic with no shoes, no shirt. And upon being taken into custody by police, his first words are, I didn't kill no woman. Well, damn. That sounds pretty guilty. Um, Yeah. Police described him as having wild eyes. They suspected he was on drugs. A piece of paper was found in his pocket, and it had white powder in it, which was tested by by the UT Memphis lab and was cocaine residue. They also found a syringe capper and a, a syringe wrapper and a cap, you know, the orange cap for the needle, uh, were recovered from his pants pocket, as well as his gold watch with blood on it. Now, Payne's story is and has always been that as he was going into the building, an African-American man, the man was wearing a white or beige tropical shirt that was longer than his shorts, which doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me. Right. Um, that's pretty much the, that's pretty much the uh, extent of the description of this gentleman. And Payne said when he entered the building and started going up the stairs toward Bobby's apartment, he heard a baby crying and moaning coming from Sharice's apartment. So he entered through the open door, called out and let Sharice know he was coming in. Mm Because, you know, he wouldn't go into an apartment that wasn't his. Oh, no, never. Um, He found Sharice, Lacey, and Nicholas in the kitchen. Uh, he said Sharice had a knife in her, had the knife still in her throat, and had right. her hand on it, it like out. she was going to take it out. And so, helpful person that he is, he takes a knife out of her throat, which is the worst fucking thing he could have done. Right, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's. And, I mean, I guess we're somehow with a guy who claims to have an intellectual disability, but that's common fucking sense. Yeah. You don't pull something out. Uh, and and the knife that he pulled out of her mother's throat somehow ends up at Lacey's feet, which he doesn't explain why he would put the knife by Lacey's feet, because that's where it was found when when police came in. Um, he claims that he went to the phone and picked it up and turned the numbers, 
but he couldn't call for help on the phone because he didn't know phone numbers. Right. I believe Millington had 911 by this time. But maybe that's Purvis's way of making it seem like he's got an intellectual disability. Um, and so he decided, since he couldn't call for help, he decided to go out and get help. And as I said, when he went out of the apartment, he closed and locked the door, I guess, so that the guy in the tropical shirt couldn't come back. And then he says, when he sees the cop pull up, he gets scared. And so instead of telling the cop, oh, my God, there are three people in that apartment, hurry, they need help, he runs. And, you know, like a predator, cops, when you run, they tend to chase you. So he actually distracted the officer by running rather than staying put and telling the officer Describing the man he saw, telling the man, you know, telling the officer what direction the man went in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's that's part of the story. Um, pre-trial, they did the Shelby County District Attorney General's office did apparently the the drug paraphernalia, et cetera, uh, seized from pain at his arrest, did slip through the cracks. But it was made, the the defense was made aware of it uh, prior to the trial, like a week prior to the trial. And the defense attorney, he said, I don't need to do any testing or any independent testing or anything of that nature. And he didn't move to have it excluded. Okay. Um, So they went to trial and also like as we discussed, I think the the driving around, doing drugs, drinking, looking at porn, I don't think that was something that the police were aware of in the initial investigation. Mm-hmm. And that they became aware of it closer to the trial date. And that led them to believe that that could be a motive. For, I mean, for his pain to do what he did. I mean, and you look at the pictures that I posted on the page. Sharice was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Yes, and no. I, I think it's, I think it's kind of a leap to go from, hey, we're watching porn. I'm gonna go get some ass, and if somebody tells me no, I'm gonna rape them. Well, I, if you're, yeah, but if you're drinking, if you're, if you're drinking. And you're using cocaine, your inhibitions are going to be suppressed, and you may also be a little bit incapable of ir- of rational behavior. Mm-hmm. And he may have thought, you know, he may have thought Cherie smiled at him once, and that means she wanted some of that. Because sometimes men are that stupid. You know, right. and I mean, he may have been, he may have been waiting all day for Bobby to come home, and Bobby, Bobby wasn't coming home, and he had an itch, and he needed it scratched, and it was after three o'clock in the in the afternoon. God damn it! Right. He was tired of waiting on Bobby. 
and Sharice was there. I mean, he if if Sharice had still been at her parents' house, he probably would have gone after the woman sunbathing in the backyard. He might have gone after Nancy Wilson, the manager. He might have gone after the other tenant. Like I said, he had an itch. He was using cocaine. He was drinking. He had been exacerbating the itch by looking at porn. And he was going to get it scratched. Touche. Touche. You know. So. I just think that um, would be a situation. As far as that being a motive, I think that would be a situation where the perfect storm would have to come together for all of that to drive somebody into murder. I just my thought on that though. I, I'm not, by but no means an expert in the human mind. Cocaine can make you, like I said, the murders may have come about when Sharice rejected him. The murders mm-hmm. may have come about because of that rejection. True. Or it may have been that he just knew she was going to tell Bobby. Maybe she said, I'm going to tell Bobby. And she's going to cut your ass loose. Right. And he doesn't want to jeopardize that. So, I mean, there there are a lot of things. If he had gone, you know, if if, if the apartment had been women who didn't know him, he might have been satisfied with sexual assault and then leaving. Her. Did Sharice resist him? Did Sharice hit him? He had scratches on his on his shoulders and chest. He claims those were stretch marks from working out, but you know that's as much bullshit as this man in the white or beige tropical shirt, frankly. Um, sure. So, but, and like I said, I, I, I think that, that Sharice knew him. That is where, you know, that is where the, the need to murder her really came from. And then the kids, because they, they knew him, they could have, they could have identified him to police and he doesn't know they were both too young to testify at a trial. But they could have told police it was Purvis. Good and I'm sure, I bet you there were not a lot of guys running around uh, Shelby T- County or Tipton County with the name Purvis. Yeah, no. Not too many. So, um, I don't think there's too many people running around the world named Purvis. Yeah. So... Um, the trial was in 1988. I think it was in February. Um, the prosecution had Payne's bloody clothing, watch, and shoes. There were fingerprints on a can of Colt 45 in Sharice's apartment. And in, in Purvis's statements, he never said, I went in there you know, I was drinking a beer and I went in and put it down. And everything Purvis had said was that when he came in, Lacey and Sharice were on the floor. 
Um, Lacey was already dead, but he claims to have heard a baby crying. How can he hear a baby crying if the baby was dead? Um, although, unless he, unless he means Nicholas, and I'm sure if someone would ask him, oh, yeah, that's what I meant, Nicholas was crying. Um, and then you have Nancy Wilson and the sunbather's statements and testimony, which really make it impossible for anybody but Purvis Payne when you mm-hmm. look at Officer Owen's testimony totality of those three witnesses it's impossible for anybody but Purvis Payne because the time frame between Wilson's call and Owen's arrival is around two minutes and the only person Owen saw was Purvis Payne and in spite of the fact that people at that time were out and around, I think there was a barbecue going on at, at that apartment complex or, or another complex on that street. Um, nobody saw this man in a phantom man in the tropical shirt. Right. Um, and then the defense case basically was Payne's testimony. So Payne has gotten to tell his story. He told the story to his jury. And they didn't find it to be credible. Right. Um, Especially in light of all of the other evidence that refutes some parts of it. And there's one, there was one segment during his cross-examination where Tom Henderson asked him about how he got blood on his legs because the pants legs were were bloody. And he said something about Sharice hitting the wall. Now, remember, he's described Uh that when he entered the apartment, Sharice was on the floor in the kitchen. Yeah, and he pulled the knife out of her throat. And he pulled the knife out of her throat. He never said anything about her hitting the wall. And Tom Henderson caught those words, and he was like a pit bull. And he asked him multiple times, and, I, and he got him to admit, you know, he got him to say a couple a couple of times. Uh, but then Payne realized what he did, and he tried to retract it. But it was too late. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, this is a case, you know, this is not like some of the cases where the defendant didn't testify and now all of a sudden he's got a story he he should get a chance to tell, et cetera, et cetera. You know, BS, but whatever. Um, Payne actually testified, and the jury did not believe his story. And, you know, as you can tell, I don't believe it either. It's not. It's not credible. It's definitely far fetched. For reason, primarily being that nobody saw this phantom person, right? That he claims to have seen. Um, the jury convicted Payne of two counts of first degree murder for the murders of Sharice and Lacey, and one count of attempted first degree murder for the attempt to kill Nicholas. 
um, after the sentencing phase and victim impact, Payne was sentenced to death plus 30 years. Now, in 1987, a case came out called Booth versus Maryland, which basically said, and I paraphrase, I may not be accurately or as 100% accurately describing it, but the gist was that in a capital sentencing procedure, the only relevant information is about the defendant. Anything else is not relevant and should not be brought into the capital sentencing arena. Mm -hmm. And so in spite of this, um, Tom Henderson and his co-prosecutor, whose name escapes me now, and I apologize because she's a delightful woman. I've seen her interviewed about a few cases from that era. Mm-hmm. Um, they had Sharice's mother, Mary Fulnack, testify about the okay. impact of the murder on Nicholas. And only Nicholas. Okay, makes sense. And um, I'll get into her the substance of her testimony a little bit later. Um, and I, I, I think, I truly think that her testimony as well as the argument of the prosecutors is what led to the jury sentencing pain to death rather than a life sentence. Um, so then uh, Payne appealed, of course, direct appeal of right to the Tennessee Supreme Court. And the first thing he challenged was the sufficiency of the evidence, basically arguing that it was an entirely circumstantial case and that there was no direct evidence that he committed the murder and therefore uh, he should not have been found guilty. The Tennessee Supreme Court pretty much disposed of that one very quickly because it may have been a circumstantial case, but they were – Hella strong circumstances, right? Because you've got one eyewitness who's a police officer who observed a blood-soaked Purvis pain coming from the second floor of the apartment building down to the ground floor, and immediately Purvis pain fled. Right. And what is you know what is that Bible statement or what is that statement he who runs when he's not being chased you know that's consciousness of guilt yeah I would agree but uh, essentially the 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 court felt that it was impossible for anybody else to have committed the murder based on the totality of the evidence because circumstantial case people want to take it apart piece by piece and say, well, this piece, this doesn't mean he murdered her, so put that aside. Well, this one doesn't mean he doesn't prove he murdered her, so you can't look at that. And with a circumstantial case, you actually look at everything together, the totality. You don't look at it one piece at a time. And so, you know, he's African-American, so that's got a dark hand, Gold watch, 
gold watch had blood on it. Um, I think Lacey and Sharice were type O blood, and Nicholas was type A, as was Payne. Mm-hmm. So Payne had type O blood on his clothing and type A blood on his clothing. Mm, you know, hmm. the type A blood might have been his, but where did the type O come from? Right. and Lacey. But, I mean, I um, feel like if, if you're smart, you're not even trying to question the blood because your story accounts for the blood. So why are you trying to... Why are you trying to say that, that that it's not her blood or anything? That makes no that makes no fucking sense. Like, yeah, well, of he, course he's her blood. I fucking pulled the knife out of her throat. Like, that would that be that's what I that. like to call stupid defense attorney tricks. Yeah, that would be stupid. <laughs> um, and you know, it's kind of a throw whatever you what throw it all at the wall and Spaghetti. see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The spaghetti defense is a shotgun defense. And then they also argued that the drug evidence, the, the residue from the piece of paper, were erroneously, erroneously admitted. And Payne has argued um, that kind of made inconsistent arguments on that front, claims in some pleadings that that wasn't even his. It was he picked it up when the phantom guy dropped it. Because as the guy, as they passed, the guy dropped some papers and some change on the ground. And Payne, good helpful citizen that he is, had to go stop and pick it up. Um, and but in other other pleadings, he's argued that the testing results weren't disclosed and that the opinions of the officers weren't disclosed and so the state withheld evidence of his intoxication that could have lessened his culpability in the crimes. So, you know, he's making some inconsistent arguments about the whole drug evidence anyway. Um, So direct appeal, it should have been admitted because it wasn't disclosed in a timely fashion to his attorney. Um, but mm-hmm. the Supreme Court found that wasn't that wasn't the case. It was actually as big a surprise to the prosecutor as it was, and that they right. all you know went to observe and examine the evidence prior to the trial. And the attorney had the opportunity to ask for a continuance if he wanted to do anything with that evidence, and he elected not to. That is a valid strategy, True. a valid trial strategy. Um, and then they also raised the issue of the testimony about the impact of the murders on Nicholas. And um, this was very short, very focused, but very powerful testimony from Sharice's mother, Lacey's grandmother, Nicholas's grandmother. Um, basically, in answer to a single question about the impact of the murders on Nicholas, Mary testified, he cries for his mom. He doesn't seem to understand why she doesn't have mom. And he cries for his sister, Lacey. He comes to me many times during the week and asks me, Grandmama, do you miss my Lacey? And I tell him yes. 
He says, I'm worried about my Lacey. That was her testimony. And he, Nicholas and Lacey were like best buds. They shared a room. I've got a picture of them looking out a window together. Another picture where it looks like Lacey's tackled, just tackled Nicholas. <laughs> they were only a year apart, so they were Irish twins. Um, so, you know, 12 to 15 months apart at most. Um, he was only three and a half. Mm-hmm. And that was like I said, the most powerful testimony. By the time the the case went to trial, he was four, about four and a half. So um, that was... Damn. Yeah. And and then my Lacey, that's the title of the impact of murder case. Uh And it is. I mean... So uh, the the Tennessee Supreme Court affirmed the conviction and sentence, and in response to Payne's allegations regarding Mary Swalnick's testimony, the Supreme Court stated that it is an affront to the civilized members of the human race to say that at sentencing in a capital case, a parade of witnesses may praise the background, character, and good deeds of the defendant without limitation as to relevancy, but nothing may be said that bears upon the character of or the harm imposed upon the victims. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. It has to be balanced because the the harm to the victims is as much a part of the capital sentencing as who the defendant was or is or could Uh be. And, I mean, I listened to a few of the podcasts and there are a few on YouTube that are odd. I'm going to say there's one where the woman interacts with commenters in a live chat type thing, but she doesn't read what they're asking or saying. Hmm. Okay. So she'll be like, oh, I totally agree, so-and-so. And it's like, what did so-and-so say? What are you agreeing with? <laughs> right. So, I mean, there's there's no there's no sense of interaction, and uh, you know most of these are you know they're 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 innocent centric, so they're taking the innocence project claims and statements and repeating them as though they are gospel truth, and. Ignoring anything as Innocence Project does that doesn't fit that mold. Narrative. Right. Uh, narrative. And um, so, yeah, they're they're talking about, you know, Purvis Payne, how he loves his mom and daddy, and he helped his dad in the carpentry or the painting or whatever it was. And, 
you know, he loves puppies, and he wouldn't hurt a flea, and he's just not the kind of person who would commit this kind of crime. Well, surprise, a lot of people you wouldn't expect. Nobody expected Ted Bundy to be a serial killer, but he was, and they were shocked. Ted Bundy was Mr. Kill Your Girl. He'd steal her, then he'd kill her. (laughs) So... um, so this eventually on uh, direct appeal, after direct appeal, Payne went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think his, his counsel believed that because of Booth versus Maryland, he would get, if not an entirely new trial, at least a new sentencing. Right. And there's actually and, interesting... There's actually some interesting thoughts here. Uh, apparently, there were three dissenters, and uh, correct. Lindquist wrote the uh, wrote the decision. Yes. And okay. um, any reason was, it doesn't say why they uh, dissented. Is there any reason particularly why the three dissented? Well, the dissenters basically. Um, Essentially, the dissenters felt like we decided Booth versus Maryland. It's only been a few years. Um, you know, we don't, we shouldn't be overturning Booth versus or overruling Booth versus Maryland, and this other case, Gather South Carolina versus Gathers. We shouldn't be overruling them now, because this is in 1991. Booth was decided in 1987. Gathers was decided in 1989. So this capital sentencing scheme of a liberal court had only been in, you know, in existence for a couple of years. And these were the anti-death penalty justices on that court. Right. So that's why they dissented from the majority which was more conservative. Um, of course, you know, Justice Scalia dissented from Booth and wrote what I understand was a very powerful dissent. Uh, it was pretty powerful because it was quoted in the Payne decision. <laughs> well, and apparently this uh, decision is actually quite like a impact like for victim right cases, criminology, uh, all sorts of stuff. So like this is apparently a pretty big case uh, as far as what ended up happening with the Supreme Court. And it it was a big case because it ended up – it overruled short-lived precedent that had basically held that the impact of the victim's death on the victim's family was inadmissible in a capital sentencing prison. And and that's the thing, too. In, in other sentencing, the victim had a voice, and the victim could talk about the, the impact of the crime, and the judge could take into account impact in deciding the culpability of the defendant for a lesser felony charge. Or a lesser murder charge mm-hmm. where the defendant wasn't eligible for death, but 
was eligible for a prison term or a long prison term. And that, right. you know, that was where, and that was, I think, the main reason that the Payne court decided the way it did. Why can we have victim impact at non-capital proceedings but not in a capital one? Hmm, true. So, uh, and Payne's, because Mary, Mary Swalmack's testimony was limited to the impact on Nicholas, their decision was also confined to that scenario. And mm-hmm. generally, that's how it works. It, the Supreme Court decides to take cases and look at cases and review them and 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 are you know have them argued when there's an issue that the Supreme Court thinks needs to be clarified or, in this case, overruled. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so the going to the U.S. Supreme Court did not have the effect that Payne and his counsel hoped it would. Right, absolutely so, not. Then the case goes into state post-conviction, uh, and the first round of state post-conviction appears to have been – there's not a lot of material available on it, so I'm kind of winging it um, – on okay. actual innocence. Uh, basically, in post-conviction investigation, Payne's father found witnesses who, for some reason, did not come forward in 1987 when the murders occurred or in 1988 when Payne was on trial. But they came forward in 1990, and they gave helpful statements to the defense. One of them is a gentleman by the name of Jones. And again, I'm piecing this together based on blurbs and snippets in opinions and, and briefs. I don't have the actual opinion upholding, affirming denial of relief or whatever or the court mm-hmm. denial of relief. So don't have any firsthand source. Jones claimed to have bought drugs from Sharice, to have used drugs with Sharice, and to have had a drug dealer named Jones, unsure whether that was any relation to Jones or not, uh, say that Sharice needed to die because she either stole money or drugs. Um, This apparently is based on the fact that a toxicology report, which Payne's advocates don't make available for people to see for themselves, showed methamphetamines in Sharice's system when she died. Hmm. Um, Which, to me, is the lowest of the lowest, despicable, worst thing. Yeah, don't be victim blaming. Anybody can do to a murder victim is to say, to take a toxicology result and say, ooh, see, look, she had drugs in her system that she must have been a drug dealer. 
And she must have stolen from a drug dealer who wanted to kill her. And that's who really killed her. Now, in Jones, there's nothing about Jones's race, and there's nothing nothing about the race of the drug dealers that Sharice was allegedly uh, on the wrong side of. Right. Um, the second alternate suspect, and this one is the rich one. This one is the one that I, I labeled the stupidest, most retarded alternate suspect theory I've ever heard in my entire life. Okay. Sharice's ex-husband, Kenneth, was serving a sentence for an aggravated assault at Fort Pillow State Penitentiary, which is in Henning, Tennessee, about 40 minutes or so from Millington. What a name, by the way. Yeah. Um, Apparently, in the 90s, a former guard at Fort Pillow came forward and gave a declaration to the to the defense that said sometimes the inmates at Fort Pillow can just get in a car and leave for the day and as long as we're they're back at night we don't care or we didn't care um alternately other sources have said that there was like a work release type program at the prison and so some inmates were allowed to leave for the day and go to their jobs or go to jobs or whatever. Okay. Now, the reason I say this is the most ridiculous, stupidest thing I've ever heard is because this individual, aside from the fact that they've never testified and been cross-examined about this claim, um, the person doesn't say Kenneth Christopher within this work release program. I know because I was there. This person doesn't say, Kenneth Christopher is one of those prisoners that, haha, we used to just let him go off for the day, you know, and do whatever he wanted to do. And as long as he was back at night, we didn't care. She doesn't name Kenneth Christopher, or he doesn't name Kenneth Christopher specifically. He just says some inmates could leave if they wanted to, or they could sneak off if they wanted to. Or they were allowed to leave because they were on work release. Well, if it was work release, then I would expect that if they weren't at the job, that they were being released, that somebody would find out. Yeah, pretty sure. And there would probably be a problem. And I would like to know if this guard was no longer a guard at Fort Pillow because maybe there was an incident people leaving that the guard kind of lost his job over or her job over. Yeah. And if I'm recalling my research correctly, this person is never identified. So there's never even any way of trying to vet the allegation in the pleadings. Because you can't try and find out who this person was. Um, so yeah, that one's and and the the other reason it's stupid is because Payne says the person he saw was African American. Kenneth Christopher was not African American. Uh, 
And then finally, uh, they apparently found a guy by the name of Williams who corroborated Payne's statement and said that he saw an African-American man leaving the building and get in the car and leave right before he saw Purvis Payne arrive at the building and walk in. And I believe Mm -hmm. that he also corroborated the drug use, drug sale allegations as to Sharice. Even claiming that he used to be in the apartment using drugs with Sharice. Um, Again, this is all despicable. I mean, this is despicable. I I mean, even if she did do drugs, once again, that doesn't mean she should have been killed. Just saying. Just throwing that out there. No, and it doesn't mean she sold them. And it doesn't mean that she was on the wrong side of any drug dealers. Right. You know? Um, And, you know, and we don't know, like I said, we don't know, A, whether that toxicology report says what they say it does. Right. Because, you know, Innocence Project, they say whatever they have to say to make their client look innocent. Like David Protest saying that Anthony Porter was not guilty and that right. Al Story Simon was the real killer. So, um, and then uh, his state post conviction was unsuccessful. He tried not only a post conviction claim with ineffective assistance of counsel, et cetera. But he tried a writ of error quorum nobis, and I think he raised these statements and claims as new evidence mm-hmm. that wasn't available. But in reality, it really was available. Um, Cherise died in 1987. If she was selling drugs, that information was available before 1987. Yeah. Because it was going on before 1987. Um, And, you know, Payne's defense attorney or his family should have had somebody in that neighborhood in Millington between 1987 and 1988 pounding the pavement and beating the doors. I mean, he had girlfriends that lived in the area. I don't understand why those girlfriends didn't come forth with stories, scandalous stories of of Sharice. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, I think, tried to claim that uh, Sharice was not sexually assaulted, that she was, um, that anything found, they found acid phosphatate, which is a component of semen, but in the absence of actual sperm, most medical examiners will not say there was sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course you can, you know, I mean, if you're, if you fried your nuts, you're not going to be putting forth any sperm. Yeah, very true. You know, if you have fertility issues, you're not going to be putting forth a lot of sperm. Um, but, uh, and then there was, there, there there's something about a tampon being found and, and then they, they, uh, Payne's defense now challenges the provenance of the tampon 
but again, they're not giving us the original source material to see for ourselves whether these questions are legitimate or whether they are just meant to diminish the impact. Because the the prosecutors argued they felt that the tampon had more to do with the attempted sexual assault. And really, in the long run, he doesn't have to have actually assaulted her. Right. The fact that he wanted sex, he was denied, and she was stabbed 42 times with a butcher knife out of her own fucking kitchen, and she had 42 defensive wounds separate and apart from the 42 stab wounds is, you know, the real issue in the case. Um, But, uh, so he went on, after that, he went on to federal court. Um, There was a 200-plus page opinion issued by the federal court in 2001 dismissing some of his many, many, many claims. And I wish I could get my hands on that 200-page opinion because it would probably have a lot of information in it. But unfortunately, it predates federal court's conversion to e-filing and having everything online. Mm-hmm. So I could not find that. Um, then in 2002, the federal court granted the state's request for summary judgment as to the issues that the federal court found were worthy of being further developed in the federal habeas claim, in that federal habeas arena. Um, Payne briefly got a win because when the summary judgment went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal, they reversed and remanded his case to the district court with instructions to grant habeas relief on the handling by the Tennessee courts of the heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravator for death penalty. However, there was an intervening United States Supreme Court case which led to the state's request for a rehearing being granted, and then the U.S. Uh, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal affirming the denial of relief based on that Supreme Court case regarding the heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravator, and basically finding that the Tennessee court handled it properly and it wasn't for the federal courts to say otherwise. Um, And then Payne went back to state court and began raising intellectual disability claims. And this would have been early 2000s. Um, He was unsuccessful primarily because, again, this could have been raised at trial. And his 
scores even on the testing that was administered in an attempt to develop these claims did not meet the criteria because the criteria for intellectual disability generally is an IQ score of 70 or below mm-hmm. prior to the crime, the offense, or prior to the date of trial and the date of sentencing. Um, and part of this, you know, is good reason because of the tendency for some individuals when they are on trial and facing the death penalty to perhaps malinger and not perform to the full capabilities and potentials so that they can score poorly on these tests. Um, Right. And basically, uh, he's never... For him to meet the criteria, his experts have to do a lot of fudging and playing with the numbers Mm -hmm. in order to meet the criteria. Uh, He had his federal habeas and his um, didn't conclude to until 2007. So it was not until 2007 that the state, uh, the Shelby County District Attorney, because that's who requests execution dates, or the county district attorney general requests execution dates. In this case, it would have been Shelby. Uh, So in 2007, they requested an execution date. And, of course, then, um, Purvis Payne, for the first time, files a request for DNA testing. And he tries to raise all the... Um, drug use, ex-husband, phantom, tropical shirt-wearing guy. Um, He tries to raise that all as new evidence, um, but he didn't meet the criteria under the law as it existed in 2007. His evidence wasn't really new. Um, What he should have done was filed a request for DNA testing at the time he got all the affidavits. Because that was when they were, quote, new, even though they weren't really new because they were based on information that was available in 1987, um, mm-hmm. uh, based on facts that existed in 1987. Uh, he also tried to, the intellectual disability. He tried to reopen his state and federal post-conviction claims. Um, he tried to file successive state and federal post-conviction claims Uh, claiming that the opinions of the officers that he was on drugs was suppressed and and it could have been used to uh, argue that he wasn't culpable for first-degree murder. He was only culpable for second-degree murder. Um, And that one really doesn't fly, and I'm surprised the court didn't address it. That right there makes me like, you're trying to you're trying to limit your culpability. You're trying to you trying to say, well, yeah, you I knew, did well, but well, but this is the thing. Purvis Payne knew he used drugs that day. Right. If he wanted to try and limit his culpability, he could have said, "Man, I did so much cocaine that day. I don't know when I was, let alone where." 
Right. I mean, you know, that the opinions of the arresting officers would have just corroborated his claim. But in and of and, and in and of themselves they weren't even I bet you if at trial they had tried to say he was on drugs, his attorney would have challenged them as being not qualified to say he was on drugs. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't see him use the drugs. Hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, it's 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 this kind of, again, it's the in, innocence fraud, throw whatever you can at the wall and see what sticks. Right. But because of the lethal, lethal injection challenges in 2006 at the U.S. Supreme Court and a lethal injection challenge filed in Tennessee State Court of the 20th Judicial District in Tennessee, um, a stay of that 2007 execution date was issued and Payne's execution was put on hold. Now, Payne did pursue intellectual disability claims in state court between 2014 and 2016. Again, no more successful because he didn't meet the criteria because his pre-offense IQ tests were above 70. They were like 73 um, overall. Mm -hmm. And, And he had a relatively, he had like a relatively good verbal score, if I recall correctly. And a, mm-hmm. and then a not a bad, I mean average IQ is one hundred, right? Okay. Um, and I would suggest that in some places like U.S. Congress, the average is somewhat lower. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right now, so. Um, and uh, in the White House, it's been barely above room temperature. Yeah. And it will continue to be barely above room temperature because let me tell y'all, as a person who is closely related to many residents of the state of Delaware, uh, Joe Biden is not that bright. Yeah. Gotta love when you gotta choose between the lesser of two. Uh, yeah, the lesser of two people. I'm just want one of these where I'm just like, I'm so proud of what I did today. Like, can I walk away from a polling place where I'm not feeling sick to my stomach? Yeah. Uh, So anyway, um, in 2018, the trial court decided the lethal injection challenge case and basically upheld Tennessee's procedures and methods. Um, And so on in December or or sometime in 2019, I think it was in December, the Shelby County Attorney General again requested an execution date be set by the Tennessee Supreme Court um, there was a lot of wrangling, and of course, 
of course, Payne's attorneys argued that they were still working on the intellectual disability claims, and you know they're they're looking at evidence to see if there's any DNA evidence that can help. But he's already had a request for DNA evidence, and he didn't qualify. Uh, but they're going to try it again because the Powers case has somehow changed the requirements, although not really. Um, so on February 24th, 2020, the Tennessee Supreme Court sets Payne's execution for December 3rd, 2020. In January and July, rather, of 2020, that's when Payne's attorneys file a request for DNA testing. They claim to have discovered new evidence, and that is evidence from a bedroom, blood-soaked evidence from a bedroom, that they claim will exonerate their client. As it turned out, the Memphis property room, somehow, for some reason, the Memphis property room had the evidence rather than Millington. Or maybe this was evidence that was in the courthouse, because it's weird. The court keeps a lot of evidence. And I'm not sure about the genesis of that. But anyway, as it turns out, the bloody bedding, et cetera, that the defense attorneys thought was related to Sharice Christopher was actually not related at all and, in fact, was related to a crime that occurred a decade after Sharice Christopher was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not – there's no new evidence. Um, there okay. were no new suspects because all they did was cite to their – old suspects like the one the guy who could just walk away from the prison for the day go to Millington kill his ex-wife and daughter nearly kill his son and then go back to prison and nobody's going to know what he did and I hope somebody from the Innocence Project is out there listening and goes well when you put it that way it sounds hmm. ridiculous, um, but that, I mean that's what it is. Their 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 claim is that Kenneth Christopher walked away from prison, went to Millington, attacked, stabbed, and killed Sharice. Attacked, stabbed, and killed Lacey. Attacked and stabbed and nearly killed Nicholas. Leaves the apartment without anybody seeing him without anybody noticing him and goes back to the prison where he was serving a sentence after he's just killed two people and would have probably believed he killed the third and he's just going to go back to prison like it never happened. I mean, how fucking stupid do you think people are? Just because it could happen doesn't mean it did. Right. And then, you know, the drug the drug claims and everything, which I'm to me are equally stupid. Um, because you know, really in the grand scheme of things, drug dealers wanting to kill Sharice. You know, whatever. But Lacey Two and a half years old, beautiful little girl, 
why would they want to kill her? Right. Exactly. And why would they want to kill three and a half year old Nicholas? Exactly. This ain't I mean, most... drug dealers would probably be smart enough to get the kids out of the house before they did anything to their mama. And again, I mean, why wouldn't Nicholas say it was so-and-so? Like I said, I, the whether – I think Nicholas has given interviews to other sources in which he has implicated Purvis Payne. He didn't do that on impact of murder. And I didn't find any direct evidence or statements from him implicating Purvis Payne. But he probably could have said it was Purvis. And more likely than not, because he could never testify, the defense, the, the cops and the prosecutors are not going to put him in the position of having to even go there. Because then it's going to be on his shoulders. He's going to feel like it's on his shoulders. So, um, and, you know, really, when it when you come down to it, Kenneth Christopher contradicts, if, if the real killer is Kenneth Christopher, that contradicts Payne's statement, because Payne's statement is that a black man, it, he saw a black man. Right. Yeah, he probably saw a black man because he's a black man, and he figured if anybody saw a black man, if I say I saw one too, I can just say it wasn't me. I mean, and, I, um, I, I, I don't know why, but for some ungodly reason, uh, the judge in Memphis, Paula Scahan, who recently denied the claims to, or the request made by Sudley Alley's family, she granted in part the request made by Payne. And um, basically, I'm trying to figure out here, um, there are some items that are no longer available. Uh, vaginal swabs were destroyed in the 1990s when a freezer at the medical examiner's office quit working, and it was several mm-hmm. days before anybody noticed that. Um, and I want to address – one other thing I want to address before I go into this mm-hmm. is that once a state gets a conviction based on the evidence available at the time of that conviction, they are not able to just – subject evidence to testing to continue to support the conviction that they obtained. First of all, if they're going to test evidence and it's going to destroy the evidence, they have to get the defendant and his attorneys involved and do it. You know, they can't do that without the guy's knowledge. Um, They he would be entitled to observe the testing. He would be entitled to do his own testing if they're going to test. So 
the claim that the state should test evidence if they believe he's guilty is just more bullshit. The the claim that they could do it and they don't want to is more bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they can't. And the reason that they oppose testing most of the time is because it is a fishing expedition. Sometimes when you look at what a defendant wants to test in a case, they don't want to test the evidence that was used against them. They want to test a cigarette pack found in another room or in a dumpster outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like the West Memphis 3 case is a prime example. They didn't want to test Miss Kelly's T-shirt and, ball, and Eccles' necklace. Okay, they didn't even want to try to subject either of those things to modern advanced DNA testing. And the reason for that is because they did not want to have testing that found victim blood on the T-shirt and the necklace. Hmm. Um, so they can say, oh, we knew it would be our blood, so that's why we didn't bother. Or, well, the original testing exhausted the samples, so that's why we didn't ask. That's bullshit. You know, you could have at least tried to see if you could recover DNA. And today's methods, I, I mean, you know, we've seen the Kevin Cooper case. What, What is sufficient now is minuscule compared to what they used to have to have. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they, they might have found enough to to get a profile and but again Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly did want not want that profile to belong to one of the victims. Because if that profile belonged to um, Michael on the T-shirt and Steve on the necklace. They can't claim they're innocent anymore. Right. True. So, um, and in this case, I'm looking to see basically. Uh, Payne wanted fingerprint testing. Um, was denied. His request for testing of his clothing, victim clothing, was granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, they're testing the tampon, they're testing some of the other things that were found in the kitchen, the weapon, uh, the knife, 
basically uh, the court just sort of, I guess, gave him more of the benefit of the doubt than um, the court in 2006 when he initially requested testing. Hmm. Okay. Uh, then um, Payne is once again trying to demonstrate intellectual disability uh, at the federal level. He has filed an entirely new petition. Of course, now that his execution date has been put on hold, he dismissed that petition before the state's request for dismissal could be examined by the court or the issue could go up to the um, court, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal. Um, But I'm sure once he has a new date, he will renew his efforts once again to have his uh, be found intellectually disabled and thus have his sentence commuted either through court action or clemency with the governor to uh, life in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, looking at this uh, attached to the motion to dismiss of the latest claim, which was filed in October, um, there's a kind of a summary of all of his appellate history and essentially he has been up before either state or federal courts on eight separate occasions so um I would, you know, I would go out on a limb here and say yeah, the system is certainly working for Mr. Purvis Payne. Yeah, because I mean, he like may not be it. successful, and you know, it, success is not is never guaranteed. But he's had the opportunity since his conviction in 1988 to appeal and raise and and have the courts hear him eight different times. Yeah. I'd say you're getting plenty of opportunities. Yeah. Uh and it's the same, you know, it's the same with Rodney Reed. This the the Basically, the the argument is the system's unfair because they're not getting relief. But that's not, you know, that's they're not getting relief because they're not proving their claims. So that is basically, oh, that is, uh, and again, we talked talked about testing is on is is has been begun 
Um, I thought the results were supposed to be available by about the middle of November, but apparently they weren't. Or Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they were not exculpatory. And so they're not going to be released online and they're not going to be able to be released to the public unless and until the state of Tennessee decides to publicize them. And we will either see Innocence Project slink away and withdraw or Innocence Project will continue to pursue the intellectual disability claims and or perhaps raise tampering claims as to the inculpatory DNA if that is what they got. Right. So, um, but yeah, he has a reprieve because of COVID. But in theory, once the DNA testing was granted, he pretty much was assured of a, a a stay mm-hmm. because even if the results came out on November 15th that still has to be it still has to go before court and a court has to make right. a decision as to whether it is or is not exculpatory and whether or not uh Payne deserves a new trial or is you know deserves exoneration so yeah. um that is the case of Purvis Payne. Any thoughts? It's special. It's special. I mean, that's the best I can say for it. I mean, like I said, there were a few things in the in the Innocence Project, which I think that's what it's made to do, is to make you question certain things. But, I mean, once again, like you said, I mean, there's so much spaghetti here being thrown up against the wall that it's just like, really, bro? Really, mm-hmm. we're just going to do yeah, this. Yeah, they want to. They they want to give the appearance of innocence. They want to imply that there is evidence that exonerates the person when that is the furthest thing from the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make same. They make the same argument with Roddy Reed. They claim her time of that Stacy's time of death is proven. It's not. Right. Michael Bodden and other medical examiners who were paid to do so came in and had alternative opinions as to time of death. And they placed time of death at an earlier time based on a single factor rather than anything multiple else. factors. And, you know, if you look at only one factor, you're going to have inconsistent times of death. And we saw mm-hmm. it with Swearingen. You know, they were looking at histology, which is never used for time of death, first of all, and ignoring the presence of the mold on her body mm-hmm. or fungus on her body. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the state of her clothing, the fact that she was wearing the same clothing that she was last seen wearing. The fact that what was in her stomach when she was found was what she was last known to have eaten. Of course, they also brought somebody in that says, oh, no, 
the, the medical examiner was totally wrong. The stomach contents were beef, not chicken. So, okay, her captor was feeding her beef. I would I would find it easier to believe that a captor was feeding her tater tots and chicken nuggets all the time. Right. You know, because their 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 time of death meant she had to have been held somewhere for an extended period of time, a couple of weeks. And that's just impossible. In fact, if she was held, she shouldn't have had anything in her stomach because kidnappers most of the time don't feed you. Yeah. Not usually. You know. They could really care less if you die. Yeah. Um, so, but that is just, that's not, that's not true. And, and you can, you can continue to portray it that way in the media but the courts are not going to fall for it. Right. And that's where the, you know, that's where the disconnect is. They, they actually do a huge disservice for themselves and and their clients because they do misrepresent the facts and the evidence to the public. Uh And then leave the public wondering you know, of course, they want to create the idea that the courts don't work for anybody, right? Uh, which is just not. Some courts don't. Which, some mean, courts to do. To be fair, they they they've done a good job of that. They they've done a good yeah. job of getting people mistrusted. I mean, then again, the system has done a good job of doing that as well in situations like we've talked about on this show before. Casey, OJ, other things like that as well. Well, no, I mean, but that's the problem. See, that's the thing. <laughs> we believe they're, they were guilty. Casey, Anthony, OJ, Simpson, whatever. But that jury did not believe that they were proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So the juries, as much as we disagree with them, and they likely did not know about some things. OJ's jury, I think OJ's jury wasn't going to convict him no matter what the evidence was. Because mm-hmm. I think the jury as the jury that ended up deliberating was the 12 people who weren't going to convict him anyway. Right. And part of it was Shit that had nothing to do with what, whether OJ did or didn't murder Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Rodney King and the riots had nothing to do with OJ Simpson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, OJ Simpson was treated with tri- with kit gloves, even after well, the low speed chase. That and Johnny he was Cox not he was not pulled out of that truck and tackled on the ground. And, you know, he was he was treated like a celebrity. Well, I mean, once again, though, that and I know you'll use a different word to describe him, but uh, Johnny Cochran was a genius and took a uh, took what was supposed to be a uh, a murder trial and turned it into a trial of the LAPD. So, I mean, yes, 
think of it what you he will, was. but that that most definitely is part of what happened. I think it was kind of like your perfect storm of factors, though. Right. Um, if the riot, if Rodney King and the riots had never happened, it that might not have been a successful um, tactic for Cochran because the the media attention on what had always been a problem would not have been there. Right. And I True. think that was around the same time as the Rampart scandal. Or the Rampart scandal broke just before uh, O.J. was going to go to trial. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's Poe's pain, and, and you know, we'll we'll see what happens with his intellectual disability, and he's requested clemency, but I guess he he's not going to want the governor to act on that anymore because he doesn't have that execution date. True, true. I and mean, um, you know, we'll we'll wait to, and see. Of course, the project he does. Yeah, but but you know, I think the only reason he was pursuing the claims between 2014 and 16 was because he had to continue pursuing them because he'd already started the ball rolling before his execution was put on hold. Mm-hmm. Because. I mean, to me, the fact that he filed something in October and then voluntarily dismissed it after he got the reprieve from the governor before the district court rules on the motion to dismiss and before the Sixth Circuit weighs in yet again Mm -hmm. on the issue, um, I think that is very telling. Yeah, I think if absolutely. he had legitimate claims, he would continue pursuing them regardless of whether he had a date or of not. execution or not. I would agree. So, all right. Well, I think that uh, I think that puts a. I'll of course, if there's anything to report on. Um, Pain when I do the update in February, I will, of course, update Everything the case that the DNA has come out, has become public. But like I said, if it's inculpatory, I don't think that the Innocence Project is going to want it to ever see the light of day. Right. And they'll do whatever they can to keep it from ever seeing the light of day. Mm-hmm. You know, because that has always been my problem with them. If they were to come in and get testing, and when it's inculpatory, because they claim that most of the time that's what happens is it's inculpatory. If they would publicize those inculpatory findings along with the exculpatory ones, I would have more um, faith in their objectivity. 
but the fact that they don't publicize the inculpatory results, so they don't balance the scale, mm-hmm. it leads me to the belief that they are not objective, that, you know, basically they want to accuse prosecutors of winning at all costs. Well, Ennis's project wants to win at all costs. Right, absolutely. Which I mean, they the want to free. The thought of the innocence project isn't a bad thing. If you knew somebody was innocent, you had the evidence. Yes, do it at all costs. Get that evidence out there and to the judge. But I mean, if you're just making shit up, then you're making shit up. Uh huh. All right. Well, let's go ahead and and call it a night. Um. Um. I'm just ready. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, December 15, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 27. State of New Jersey versus Melanie McGuire. We'll talk about the April 28, 2004 murder of William McGuire, a husband and father whose remains were found in three suitcases floating in the Chesapeake Bay area, and the 2007 trial of his wife, Melanie, who was convicted of his murder based on strong circumstances and numerous pieces of forensic evidence that contradicted McGuire's claim regarding Bill's disappearance. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.